This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. I caught up a couple of days ago with a gentleman by the name of Charles Gardner. He's a municipal court judge. He's a retired correctionals, corrections regional training lieutenant um, based over in Malone in New York County. And uh, he is, he's got a remarkable story, Chris. He, he certainly does. He is also the author. You remarked on it a little earlier. It, this is a book that's dropped. It's already winning. Does a book reviews. drop? I mean, I know a record drops, but yeah, does a drops. book drop? It drops on the shelves. Yeah, I'm sticking with it. All right, okay. it's called Danamora: Two Escaped Killers, Three of Terror, uh, Three Weeks of Terror, and the Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. Now, it was you that interviewed him, Robert. But just mm. to give you a bit of background, Danamora: It's a small town of a population of about five thousand people over in New York State. It is also home to a correctional facility um, by the name of Clinton Correctional Facility, which houses three thousand hardened convicts. So, the eight thousand people that live in that vicinity. Almost half of them are dangerous criminals. Indeed. And in the summer of 2015, that prison population was actually missing two inmates. That's right. That's right. Well, let's let's start by getting a little flavour of the Clinton Correctional Facility. We know the infamous jail in Shawshank with Warden Norton. Yes. This is every bit as austere, every bit as penal, every bit as foreboding as that fictional jail. And Charles paints a vivid picture. Clinton Correctional Facility is is often referred to as Little Siberia. And there's a couple of different analogies that you can make there, but understand right now I'm sitting in Northern New York, just a few miles from Clinton Correctional Facility where Denimora took place and unfolded. Um, I'm looking at a couple of feet of snow with uh, temperatures just above freezing. So, yeah, it's Little Siberia is a very, very good analogy for uh, for when when you think when you think about Clinton Correctional, um, built approximately 170 years ago. Um, she's an old fortress, you know. She's she's an old prison. She was built as a prison. She's an old prison and. And um, it just got quite a, a presence to it, and it, it has quite an energy to it, without a doubt. I know they always say they refer to boats as she, but uh, prisons? Yeah, it's, I've never heard that expression either. She's yeah, it is interesting <laughs> there. She says she, he says it's a she, but it's you've used the beautiful word. It's foreboding. It is unforgiving. Mm. Was that prison you've heard there? Heard there? It's it stood the test of time. It's the Siberian. It's a it's a jailhouse that is mimicking. I guess a jailhouse over in the Russian tundra of Siberia. So that gives you a, a real insight into. We've set the scene as what we've well, done. Well, yeah. In other words, if you were to ever engineer an escape from this prison, you'd have to worry about what you'd do once Indeed. you got out. Getting out and actually surviving once out is just as difficult as actually engineering an escape. But well, you said that because he, in actual fact, he said when it was put, you put the question to him about if it was ever envisaged of engineering escape from this fortress and he said that if you had said that to him you would have said I would have said that it was something made in Hollywood mm. and even those scriptwriters in Hollywood would have loved you and your imagination two men two men were audacious enough to attempt it the names were Richard Matt and David Sweat and they uh, are both convicted murderers Richard Matt back in 1997 kidnapped his former boss 
who was an elderly man and ended up strangling him with his bare hands. And David Sweat uh, was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the killing of Broome County Sheriff's Deputy Kevin J. Tarsia. That was back in 2002. These two struck up an allegiance mm -hmm. whilst in the Clinton Correctional Facility. And I asked Charles how on earth they went about escaping this facility. Well, I, I hate to tell you the story because I hate to ruin it for anyone that's going to read it. But spoiler alert, Robbie, we will tell you the story. As a result of utilizing simple hand tools, hacksaw blades were by far the uh, the biggest tool of the day that aided and abetted these two uh, inmates. They were able to cut out of the back of their cells within a couple of weeks uh, a hole the size of, a, I call it a doggy door, uh, a door big enough for, for a canine to go in or out of a, of a residence type of a scenario. Uh, they were able to cut out of the back of their cells and continue to camouflage it during that process. Once they were out of the back of the cells, they were able to gain access to what was known as the subterranean tunnels that were literally four stories down below from where they actually uh, lived inside these blocks, these prison uh, housing units. They were able to get down into the subterranean tunnels and make their way through the subterranean tunnels um, approximately 133 days from the time that they started. They were able to breach uh, and, and escape from the, uh, the facility in approximately 133 days, utilizing nothing but hand tools. Items that they had found in the subterranean tunnels, discarded construction materials, um, everything aided in their, uh, their escape. But uh, a total of eight hacksaw blades were used to cut their way out of the cells, get in, gain access to the subterranean tunnels, cut and move hangers uh, that were supporting... Uh, um, heating pipes and uh, supply pipes uh, for different utilities make their way to a 18-inch uh, round heat pipe that contained uh, steam and hot water that heated the facility. Uh, by the time that they were to that pipe in June, it had been shut off approximately 30 days earlier. They breached inside the pipe, went through the pipe to uh, get beyond the perimeter wall, and then cut their way back out of the pipe. Uh, again, back into a subterranean tunnel and then made their way to a manhole and then freedom awaited on the other side of the manhole. I think it's important to point out at this point, this is back in 2015. This isn't 40 years ago. The thing that astounded me there I wonder was... whether Shawshank inspired them because surely they'd have seen it. Yeah, of course. So yeah, they'd yeah. know that that was possible. But yeah. here's the thing about it. Once you've burrowed away, once you've got even that, that, that dog, dog flap-sized hole that you can... which for anyone who suffers from claustrophobia must be abominable just to actually burrow through that. Once you get into this network of pipes and tunnels in the back of the facility, behind the cells, how on earth do you navigate in the darkness, number one? And number two, you, you only have a finite amount of time to be out of your cell beavering away before you've got to be back in your cell. Absolutely. So all, how do you time that? All will be revealed over the course of the next half hour. What I would say at this point, and again, we can't condone what certainly they did to land in prison and, and obviously their escape, but we were talking yesterday about euphoria. You imagine the adrenaline that those two men would have had. Middle of night making their way through, getting through that first wall into the next sta stage of this prison break. Their it's like a real-life computer game. Yeah, it would have been 
remarkable. And, and listening there to Charles, he, he talks there about 133 days from start to finish. And just to put that into some context, and we go back to Shawshank Redemption, because this is a bit of a, a real-life Shawshank Redemption in terms of the escape. Of course, these two men were guilty. Andy Dufresne, spoiler alert, was not. <laughs> yeah. But Andy Dufresne... But it's important we acknowledge that. There's a lot of spoiler alerts. he was alert. an innocent man. He was an innocent man, was Andy. But it took Andy 19 years to borrow, yeah. borrow his whole... Slouch. And this, this, these guys did it 133 days. <laughs> We've got to the bit about the escape and the tools that they used to pull it off. And again, we go back, Shawshank Redemption, because, of course, in that film, Andy Dufresne, he hid his little hole that he was working on for 19 years with that little rock hammer. He hid it be behind posters of famous actresses. I think at the time, Rita Hayworth was one of those posters and Raquel Welch. Mm. I think that's the, the final poster that Warden comes in and where's he gone? He's disappeared. And then I'm spoiling Shawshank Redemption for those of you that You've all seen it. Shawshank Redemption, come but, on. And then, of course, it later transpires that the hole is behind the poster. Anyway, you put the question to Charles that in the case of both Dave, David and Richard did they employ similar tactics to Andy Dufresne and this is incredible. So first and foremost the hacksaw blades were smuggled into the correctional facility by a, uh, a female employee that worked in what was known as a tailor shop tailor shop was a uh, an industrial uh, building where they actually made clothing for the inmate population uh, these two inmates actually worked in the tailor shop. The inmates had befriended the female staff employee, uh, had convinced her and manipulated her to the point where she ended up bringing in an assortment of different pieces of contraband. The biggest contraband, of course, being the hacksaw blades. So going back to the same theory and the same theme as Shawshank, both of these uh, convicted killers were artists and they had actual paintings that they would manipulate and put in front of the uh, their work as they were cutting um, but they would also go the step further where they would uh, fill in anything that they had cut with um, putty and paint over the putty um, so the detection of the actual breaching of the cell would be literally impossible um, unless you just went and exactly, if you knew exactly where to go and exactly where to look, uh, the detection of this would be impossible. But when they would leave their cell during the middle of the night to work in the subterranean tunnels, uh, they would pull a painting in its place, um, and it would completely hide that breached back wall of their cell. It does go to show human nature and how impressionable some people can be. You would think that no one or, or anyone, for that matter, who worked in a prison in particular would be immune to the charms of two convicted yeah. killers. And yet here they are getting one of the employees to smuggle contraband yeah. in for them. And we've seen that time and time again. There are loads of instances where uh, felons, convicted felons, uh, convicts have, have done just that. But at the end of the day, we're human. And these guys have manipulated this individual in order to help them with their master plan. More on that individual in just a moment. But what about the blueprints for a successful route, a successful <laughs> route out of the prison? It's it's like a mole burying tunnel, <laughs> yeah. tunnels underground. I mean, how... Uh, you're not going to just say, hey, guys, you got the schematics of this place by any chance. <laughs> you can't do that. So 
How on earth? I guess each night as they made their way out of their cell into the, the back. They're plumbers as well as escape artists. They're, they're, they're working as they go. They're, they're plotting their route as they go. Well, Charles had more on that particular adventure. So with regards to inside the prison, um, there would be just enough light that would be generated in a lot of the different areas that they could work their way through the subterranean tunnels and they were able to continue on their path. Understand there was a lot of trial and error with regards to assorted routes in that 133 days. They, uh, they, they, they had a lot of different routes that they would try and they would not be successful. So they would come back and try again. It's almost like the maze, you know, the mouse with the, uh, the cheese making its way through the maze. And uh, they, they eventually found their way out. Once they located that steam pipe, they knew that all utilities coming into these facilities would go under the walls, and they knew that it was their way out, and they, that's why they breached it. Authorities say the two men had inside help facilitating their escape. Now, once they got outside of the perimeter of the, uh, the prison, Joyce Mitchell, again, the, the uh, lady that had introduced the hacksaw blades, had also introduced maps. Uh, these inmates had in their possession maps prior to the escape. And they were aware of where different roads were, where different municipalities were, where Canada was. Understand Canada was only approximately 25 miles um, as the crow flies um, from the prison. So they had a wonderful lay of the land with regards to um, highways, railroad uh, routes and cities and where to go and where not to go. I wonder if they also, when finally tunneling out of the prison, did the whole Andy Dufresne <laughs> shirt off, arms up, uh, like a goal scorer celebration yeah. into the, the night sky. Uh, it did recall, and I saw this a couple of, probably a couple of months ago, actually. It's on Twitter. Um, the, caption, the caption reads, anytime you feel like, like life isn't nice, remember this Brazilian prisoner who dug an escape tunnel for five years only to burst out in a guard room and there's a photo now i don't know whether this is staged or not but there's a photo of a man halfway torso out of this tunnel and he's basically broken out into where the guards have their cups of coffee is that true I, now i don't know all i know is that looking on twitter it has been retweeted 105,000 times it's an incredibly convincing photograph but I'm um, actually honestly i can't quite believe i'm saying this i'm actually gutted for the inmate if you spend five years <laughs> imagine that imagine the excitement as you make that final <laughs> tap onto the edge of the wall and that elation that turns to horror when you realize what you've done and there's the boys just having their cup of tea and they turn and <laughs> oh here he is what are you doing here <laughs> five years of your work down this morning oh dear so of course they were escaping or they escaped from the prison and then Rather like Warden Norton in Shawshank Redemption, the discovery was made the following morning the, that they'd gone. Exactly that. And, and he said, and, and he wouldn't go into too much detail, in all honesty, Charles. I think he was worried a little bit as to maybe letting any felons that perhaps listening to this show yeah, in would the be felons. <laughs> into the secrets of what went on. What he did say, there's loads of protocols, there's a checklist, there's lists, there is a, a plan of action when something like this, it's worst case scenario, but when they went into these two prisoners' cell in the morning, 
kicked into action. Right, these guys are missing, and uh, and obviously the search and the manhunt begun. Well, let's get Charles's take or his recollection on what that manhunt entailed. These men are considered armed. Hundreds of officers on a massive manhunt. They are killers. They are murderers. The the um, assets would include law enforcement assets from a local basis, a county, state law enforcement assets, as well as federal law enforcement assets. Um, the utilization of canine units for tracking, the utilization of aircraft, whether they be fixed wing or helicopters, as well as there was um, uh, aircraft by the federal government that was at approximately 30,000 feet with unbelievable technologies that I won't get into for the simple reason is I don't want to build an escape manual, but the technology of that aircraft in itself was phenomenal. Um, the assorted assets and the technology is mind boggling. And we talk about a majority of it, but bearing in mind, I don't want to give up all the information with regards to the assets available to law enforcement for the simple reason is, again, I do not want to make an escape manual for the next one that gets out. And unfortunately, right now, today, while we're doing this interview, Robbie, someone somewhere is chiseling, chipping, scratching, and digging their way out of a correctional facility somewhere, whether it be in Dubai or whether it be in the United States or Canada. So the the undying human spirit of ingenuity, isn't it? It is. I mean, again, and I'm, I'll sound like a broken record, we can't condone it, but there is part of you that, I don't want to say admires, that's the wrong word, but it is. But it, it is. is admiration for the for the sheer doggedness. Yeah. And, and that's... I guess it's bloody mind. Exactly. Well. Um, it's actually, this has been made into a movie starring Benicio del Toro. Has Paul, it? Uh, yeah, Paul Dano and the woman is played by one of the Arquettes. There are two... Is there two female ah, arcades? Yes, we're being told by producer Tom that Ben Stiller directed the movie. So yes, it is a movie. You can watch this and you can watch the story. But we had to know what befell of the two men. What happened to them? Charles picks up the story. Hundreds of officers now on a massive manhunt. The search. The search heating up. The two are still on the loose. Remain at large. Armed and dangerous. They are very dangerous. A manhunt that began with near cinematic drama has come to an end in equally unforgettable fashion. Well, Richard Matt and David Sweat um, were together for a majority of their time of, of freedom. And after a couple of weeks of being together, I call it the bromance. Their bromance kind of fell apart. These two decided they had had enough of each other. At least David Sweat had decided he had had enough of Richard Matt. And when the opportunity presented itself, David Sweat left Richard Matt and went on his own. And Richard Matt had, without a doubt, an agenda. He was not the kind of guy that you would want to leave without, uh, on the side of the road uh, as you had promised that you were going to be there. Joyce Mitchell had promised that she was going to pick up these two when they escaped. Joyce Mitchell wasn't there. Richard Matt is not one of those guys that you want to leave hanging on the side of the road. And Richard Matt had an agenda. And it, this would not be a good week to be hanging out near Joyce Mitchell's house. I'll put it that way. 
because 50 some odd miles from that prison, Richard Matt was able to close the distance to less than 10 miles before he was confronted by law enforcement. And as a result of that confrontation, Richard Matt refused to lower a firearm that he had in his possession, and, and Richard Matt was shot and killed. So Richard Matt was on a revenge mission against Joyce Mitchell, who had helped him escape. Absolutely. Joyce Mitchell had, had provided everything that they had needed right up to the very last step. And the very last step was Joyce Mitchell did not show up when asked to, leaving these two escaped inmates standing on the side of the road waiting for a ride. And had she done that, then they could have, they could have got, gotten away full time they could have they could have escaped the clutches of the of the hunt that was pursuing them right they would have had a solid five and a half to six hour head start before law enforcement would even begin to rally um their uh, their search for these two guys they would have had a solid six hour head start wow. six hours it would have put them uh, out of the state they could have been well into canada they could have been uh up into maine in six hours which is a couple of states away they could have been all the way through New York State and well into Pennsylvania within a six-hour window. And Joyce Mitchell wasn't there to make that happen. Says a lot about the mindset of Richard Matt. If you've escaped from prison, mm. your first thought has got to be sure. not revenge for the fact that Joyce, who's helped you up until this point, isn't at the side of the road. I get that that's you know, scuppering your escape plans, but get away. Yeah. Don't, but again, he probably felt stranded. I mean, he was going to get picked up eventually. He needed that final ride. Yeah. He was one taxi ride away from ultimate freedom, or as I put it rather stupidly, (laughs) full-time freedom. freedom. (laughs) It's not a job. Full-time freedom. (laughs) Oh, dear. What about David Sweat? What became of him? over to Charles. After the two inmates had split up with each other as a result of the end of the bromance, David Sweat would change direction and head north for Canada. David Sweat would be able to close in less than two miles from the Canadian border. And he would be confronted by a New York State police sergeant who was on patrol by himself. And the New York State Police Sergeant was able to immediately identify and go into a foot pursuit with David Sweat. After approximately a 100-yard chase and David Sweat's refusal to comply and to give up, the sergeant was left with no choice as David Sweat approached a wood, uh, heavy wooded area the sergeant knew that once he got into that heavy wooded area that he would be into Canada before he could ever be stopped. Uh, the sergeant drew his service uh, pistol and was able to uh, hit David Sweat with two rounds from a 75-yard freestanding uh, shot and to bring David Sweat down and thus take him into custody by himself. Where he remains, obviously he's still now inside. He is recovered from that injury and and will spend the rest of his life behind bars, I assume? That is correct. He fully recovered from uh, all injuries sustained as a result of his capture and is currently um, uh, still incarcerated in New York State's maximum security prisons and has moved quite often so he can't get too comfortable and hopefully not scratching his way out of the next cell. So that's Richard and David... (laughs) 
Seems a bit weird to call, use their first names, but that is Richard and David, the story of them. What about the third party in all of this? Yes, Joyce. Joyce, Joyce Mitchell, who we're told is played by one of the Arquettes. I thought there was only one. Well, there's two. There's David Arquette and Patricia Arquette. I wasn't aware there was a third Arquette. Courtney Cox. Courtney. <laughs> no, Courtney Cox was married oh, to yeah, David good point. Arquette. Good point, yeah. Sorry. Well, Frank. I did ask Charles, what did happen to... Joyce. These two uh, were, were no uh, no joke. They were not choir boys. They were very ruthless. They were both killers. Um, Joyce Mitchell uh, would end up uh, being incarcerated into New York State's maximum security prison for females, where she's doing uh, between two and seven years uh, of a state sentence for her role in this escape. Two I mean, seven years. She's got to be introspecting and thinking, what on earth was I doing? Yeah, she was. She, I, I, I wouldn't say she was duped. She, I, I think she became infatuated. Is what it was. She was manipulated, uh, and unfortunately, when that happens, and and you lose all sense of what is right and wrong, and it, it just it what, what amazes me is that she was exposed to them enough to develop an infatuation yeah. Yeah. because they're prisoners. They're in a high security prison, and she's a, an employee of that prison. Yeah, but again, you don't know her state of mind, Rob. It could, you know, a, a little a bit of charm on the, on the case of one of them or both of them making her feel special. We don't know her home life. You know, we don't know what she went through. I, I, I couldn't tell you what she looks like, but a little bit of charm. It could be you're looking nice today. You know, people, and you're looking at me a bit strange. You're looking that. nice today from a man who was last seen strangling someone to death. Fair point. Fair point, my man, but you don't oh, know. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, like you too. You. I like you. I like, what what you that, I like that orange jumpsuit on you. It's very <laughs> fetching. But you know what I mean by that, right? We do not know mm. the mental kind of disposition of George right. Mitchell. Well, I did say, and there was a degree of admiration, I think, for the fact that they managed to pull this off as human fortitude. Did I... Well, did Charles feel you just kind of have to doff your cap? Oh, my gosh. Robbie, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I absolutely agree with you. This is a, a, an unbelievable nonfiction write of an incident that as you read it, you will go, oh, my God, they're making this stuff up. And, and this is all nonfiction write. This is a, when we documented this incident and when we wrote this book, we put everything in here as it unfolded. And as a reader, you are going to read this and you're going to go, oh my gosh, this thing was, was written for Hollywood. Um, and and it, the story actually does have a Hollywood twist in it. Um, it. It's unbelievable what was capable of being done by these two convicted murderers, these two hardcore criminals, and how they were able to to, to make this thing happen. It was unbelievable. Um, I did ask Charles about how <laughs> this story exposes the frailties of the prison system and also in, in human frailties and how those weaknesses were exploited. His take on the failures of governing prisons. New York State's employees are very well trained. It's training that's been around for a lot of years. It's training that has worked for thousands and thousands of employees. Currently, New York State Department of Corrections employs just shy of 30,000 people. And it has, it's worked quite well for a lot of years. But like you said, it involves human, uh, human beings. And with humans, there's going to be emotions. There's going to be failure. There's going to be people, like in Joyce Mitchell's case, who refuse to, to do as they're trained. 
They're going to refuse to utilize their training. And Joyce Mitchell was afforded a number of opportunities to get back with the program, I guess is the best way to describe it. Joyce Mitchell's behaviors, inappropriate behaviors, were noted and discussed with her a number of times, verbally discussed with her, with an attempt by her supervisors to get her back on the program, to get her doing what she was supposed to be doing. Joyce Mitchell refused to comply with her supervisors and was insistent upon doing things her way. It got to the point where Joyce Mitchell was actually formally counseled and actually written up for her inappropriate behaviors. And unfortunately, bureaucratics, uh, bureaucrats and bureaucratic uh, red tape resulted in Joyce Mitchell not being removed from this position and the failure that we ended up with with these two escaped convicts running around in the Adirondack Park, the six million acres of forever wild, a very rugged terrain where they were for over three weeks. The voice there of Charles A. Gardner. He is a municipal court judge. He's a retired corrections regional training lieutenant in Malone, New York. He is the author of Danamora, Two Escape Killers, Three Weeks of Terror and the Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. And if you fancy reading that book, you can find it in audiobook format. Just search for it online as well. It's on Amazon. Or it's available. Can... <laughs> or you can just listen to this podcast. <laughs> she kind of got the answer there. But thank you so much to Charles for sparing his time to chat to us. Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.